Welcome to a special midterm elections edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Healthcare is one of the big issues in midterm election races across the country. Voters are concerned about many aspects of healthcare, including coverage of pre-existing conditions, premium rates, and access to care. To talk about the state of healthcare policy and its role in the 2018 midterms, I'm joined today by Matthew Fiedler. He is a fellow with the Center for Health Policy at Brookings and a former chief economist of the Council of Economic Advisors, where he oversaw the Council's work on healthcare policy, including implementation of the Affordable Care Act's health insurance expansions and healthcare delivery system reforms. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows and visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. For more analysis from Brookings experts on the upcoming elections, go to brookings.edu slash 2018 midterms. And now on with the interview. Matt, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having me. Can you start by reviewing the state of healthcare policy issues in the United States today? What are the big issues? So I think far and away the biggest issue is the Affordable Care Act, the changes that have been made to the Affordable Care Act during the Trump administration and what the future of the Affordable Care Act will be going forward. There are, I think, a variety of other policy issues that are in the background in various ways. Certainly there's a lot of interest in opioids. I think there's a lot of interest in, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, of what a health policy agenda might look like past 2018 and past 2020, really. But I think for the most part, our debate is being structured very much around the Affordable Care Act. And so when we think about the Affordable Care Act, it's not as implemented a couple of years ago. There's been a lot of changes over the past couple of years under the Trump administration. Can you talk about what some of those changes have been? So there were four major changes that the Trump administration has made to the ACA since taking office. So last fall, the administration cut off what are called cost-sharing reduction payments to individual market insurers, which compensate those insurers for providing lower cost-sharing to low-income enrollees. The second change, which will take effect for 2019, is the repeal of the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate. Third big change is the administration over the last year has unveiled rules that allow what are called short-term limited duration plans that are exempt from most of the ACA's insurance requirements. So the requirement that plans can't deny people who have pre-existing conditions, can't charge them more, and have to cover essential health benefits and the like. The administration unveiled rules that will allow those plans to be offered in a much broader array of circumstances. And then I think the fourth big change, those are all sort of changes that largely affect the individual health insurance market. The fourth big change are changes in how the Trump administration is managing the Medicaid program. So the administration has begun approving state waivers that restrict Medicaid eligibility in various ways that prior administrations had not been willing to approve. I want to touch on a lot of these throughout this conversation, but first I want to ask this kind of a broad question. Mm -hmm. How does the outcome of these 2018 midterm elections, how does control of Congress affect the Affordable Care Act's future? So we saw just yesterday Senator McConnell saying that if he has the votes next year, he would like to take another effort at ACA repeal. So I think in a scenario where there continues to be a Republican House and where Republicans have picked up a seat or two in the Senate, I think you are very likely to see another effort at repealing the ACA. And I think given how close it came last time around, there's a real chance that it would be successful. I mean, exactly what that legislation would look like, I think, is a little bit of an open question, though it was called the Graham-Cassidy proposal from last fall is probably would be the starting point for a lot of those discussions, given that it was sort of the last man standing last year, and it's the proposal that the administration has endorsed in its budget proposal this year. 
as I recall, it was just the one vote in the Senate by John McCain that ended the attempt to totally repeal the Affordable Care Act. So it seems like if the Democrats take control of the House, then it won't be repealed outright, but the Trump administration in its implementation and in rulemaking will continue to change, alter, chip away at the fundamental premises of the Affordable Care Act. So that's right. I think in a scenario where Democrats have control of at least one House of Congress, we're not going to see major health care legislation over the subsequent two years would be my expectation. There may be small things that happen, particularly on sort of second tier issues, but we're not going to see major legislative changes to the ACA. But I think there will continue to be efforts by the Trump administration to undermine or reshape the Affordable Care Act in various ways. It seems like in a lot of the races on the Democratic side, at least, that candidates are really aligning closely with the Affordable Care Act, or at least with the tenants that the Affordable Care Act represents. Mm -hmm. There was some study that showed that nearly half of Democratic campaign ads since the start of 2017 have mentioned health care compared to about a fifth of Republicans. Do you think this suggests increased acceptance kind of in the general public about the Affordable Care Act? So the polling data we have certainly suggests that views towards the Affordable Care Act have improved markedly. So the Kaiser Family Foundation has the longest-running tracking poll on this, and you know the ACA has been consistently in positive territory with more people having a favorable view of the law than an unfavorable view of the law since the repeal debate started after the 2016 election. I suspect that those public views are what we're seeing in candidates' approaches to this issue. I think exactly why the repeal debate had that effect on public opinion is an interesting question. You know, one explanation is that people never really understood what the ACA did, and so the repeal debate sort of clarified what the consequences of the law were. Another possibility is realizing that the changes that were implemented in the ACA could actually go away, made people scared about losing those things, and that in turn translated into a more favorable view of the law. Well, it seems like one of the top features of the Affordable Care Act is this coverage of pre-existing conditions, or health insurers can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, and that seems to have very widespread appeal. Maybe that's the most popular aspect, and even Republican campaign ads are promoting Republican candidates who say they support the coverage of pre-existing conditions. President Trump has said, will have coverage for pre-existing conditions. It sounds like that concept has really become stuck in the public's mind as a must-have. Yeah, this has been one of the most popular provisions of the ACA from the beginning, really. And I think that's probably because a large majority of the public either has a significant health condition themselves or knows someone who has a significant health condition, and so it's very real to them how this provision might, might ultimately affect their lives. I think what's a little bit unclear is whether the sort of consensus we're seeing on the campaign trail that protecting people with pre-existing conditions is important will really translate into policy. So, I mean, last year, public attitudes on these provisions of the ACA were in a fairly similar place even before the repeal debate kicked off. And as a result of that, during the repeal debate, many Republican members of Congress were arguing, yes, it's very important that whatever bill we put forward ensure that people with pre-existing conditions can still get coverage and don't face many higher costs. And yet at the end of the day, the House passed a bill that wouldn't have done those things. And so I think this slippage between public rhetoric and where policy actually goes is something to keep an eye on. Right. And at the same time, the Affordable Care Act, again, it protects coverage of pre-existing conditions. And yet I think something like 20 Republican attorneys general around the country and the Trump administration have backed a lawsuit in Texas mm -hmm that is seeking to basically gut the Affordable Care Act to declare it unconstitutional. And so if that lawsuit were to prevail, there would no longer be this protection of pre-existing conditions. And yet some of those same governor candidates who support this lawsuit are saying they support covering pre-existing conditions. 
Right. I think the history of that lawsuit is long entangled. It is quite striking that you have literally some of these same people who as attorney general have decided to pursue that lawsuit, arguing that, of course, they strongly support maintaining existing protections for pre-existing conditions. It's one of the sort of unusual ironies, I think, of this year's cycle. I want to ask you one more question about yeah. polling data and yeah. kind of the general public. I think it's interesting. Pew research data on partisan difference on the importance of health care to individual people's voting patterns. 88% of Democrats view health care as an important voting issue, whereas only 60% of Republicans said that this is an important issue. But health care affects everybody. Do you have any thoughts on the discrepancy there? You know, I think... I mean, obviously, even 60% of Republicans is not a small number. But I think part of it is that is reflecting the fact that Democrats were very galvanized by the repeal fight last year. And I suspect that is translating to how much importance they are placing on the issue going into this election. Let's talk about some of those policy issues around the changes to the yep. Affordable Care Act that yep. you mentioned at the top of the show. One of them is the repeal of the tax penalty mm-hmm. on the individual mandate, which you said goes into effect in 2019. Yep. You talk again about what that provision is or soon to be was, Mm -hmm. and when would consumers feel the impact of that change? What does that change look like? Yep. So the individual mandate was the ACA's requirement that people either have health insurance or pay a penalty. So when it was fully in effect, it was a penalty if you didn't have health insurance of $695 per person or 2.5% of your household income, whichever was greater. The goal of the policy was to expand coverage with two objectives, both Directly, we wanted more people covered, but also so that the risk pool in the individual market included more healthy people, so premiums in that market would be lower. As the mandate goes away, my expectation is that meaningfully fewer people will have health insurance coverage. I think there's a debate over exactly how large those effects would be, but I think my best bet is at least over the long run, we'll see a reduction in coverage in probably the high single-digit millions. That will also have consequences for individual market premiums as some healthier people leave the individual market risk pool. Insurers are aware that this is happening. And so in setting the premium rates they're setting for 2019, they've largely baked in those changes. So, you know, consumers will start to see the effect of repeal of the individual mandate if they're on the individual market when they obtain coverage this year. Let's stick on this question of premium hikes because you've done some research on this. You did a paper on what would premium changes look like if there had been no changes to the Affordable Care Act. We have seen pretty significant hikes in some premiums across the country, even in the last couple of years. So can you kind of unpack what the issues are there? Yeah. So the interesting thing is this year, even with these policy changes, premiums are actually probably likely to fall a little bit or only increase slightly depending on exactly what measure you look like nationwide. And the reason for that is what we saw last year is in the midst of all the policy tumult, the changes about cost-sharing reductions I talked about earlier, insurers' expectations that the individual mandate would be repealed, and their fear that the Trump administration would take other policy changes that would affect the individual market. Insurers set premiums really, really high for 2018. They sort of already built in most of those changes. And so what we're seeing this year is while premiums would have been even lower if the individual mandate were still in effect, And if some of the other policy changes the administration has implemented had not been implemented, premiums are actually still falling this year because the sort of correction from the overly high premiums that were set last year. Well, listeners, you can find Matt's research on this in the show notes of this program. Another aspect of the changes, as you said, concerns state waivers for the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. I know one of the policy issues that a lot of 
Republican governors are pursuing in their states is to implement work requirements for Medicaid recipients. So can you talk about that particular aspect or any other kind of salient aspects of these state waivers on Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion? So starting with work requirements, then I want to circle back because there are a few other types of waivers that states are looking at as well. But I tend to be fairly skeptical of work requirements. I think the evidence we have suggests that they are unlikely to do much to increase work, which I think is one of the key objectives that those supporting them put forward. And it's not even clear in cases where they did increase work that it's necessarily a good thing. We know that many of the people who are on Medicaid today and not working have a plausible reason for not working. So they, you know, in many cases are caring for a family member or have an illness or what have you. I think there's also a sort of moral dimension to this that even if people aren't working and they don't have a good reason, I'm not necessarily sure I think taking away someone's health insurance is an appropriate punishment for their failure to work. I think that in some ways the bigger impact of work requirements, though, may actually be on the people on the Medicaid program who are working, which is a large majority of people on Medicaid today are either working or would qualify for an exemption that exists under some of these work requirements. It turns out that documenting that you're in compliance with a work requirement is often not straightforward. Getting the documents together and making sure that they're submitted on time in the way that the state requires can be challenging. And so I think in many cases, the biggest impact we may see of work requirements is reduction in enrollment in Medicaid among people who are compliant with the work requirement who weren't able to meet the paperwork requirements. So another one of the ACA changes that you mentioned is the new rules to allow these short-term plans. I know the president is promoting that Mm -hmm. as a great Mm -hmm. alternative to the Affordable Care Act, but critics call them junk plans. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about what those are? So short-term limited duration plans are a category of plans that are exempt from all ACA requirements. So they're exempt from what are called the community rating and guaranteed issue requirements. Those are the requirements that ban insurers from varying premiums or denying coverage on health status. They don't have to provide the essential health benefit package. They don't have to cover preventive services. And they're exempt from a range of different requirements to provide protections against catastrophic costs. In terms of what the consequences of these policies will be, because these plans can keep people out or charge them more, they will typically be able to offer lower premiums to healthier people. So some healthier people will be better off or pay less because these plans are available. The flip side of that is those healthy people will tend to leave the existing insurance pool. So sicker people who depend on that insurance pool will generally pay more, and some of them may decide to go without coverage as a result. How you feel about that change is fundamentally going to depend on how you weigh the sort of benefits to those healthier people against the cost to the sicker people. The other dimension is this is short-term plans are likely to, in many cases, offer less robust insurance coverage. And there are a couple reasons for that. I think in many cases, the offering a less robust package is going to be a way for these insurers to attract a healthier pool. And so there will be sort of competitive pressures on them to do that. I think the other dimension, and this is where I think the junk plans angle comes in, is in the past, evaluating insurance contracts is often pretty complicated. And I think in some cases, consumers are not able to evaluate where there are sort of unusual gaps in coverage, that those gaps are there. And we've seen in the past some insurers sort of take advantage of that to provide plans that look like they provide coverage but aren't, in fact, robust coverage when people actually get sick. And so I think that's another potential consequence here. And one aspect of these plans, as far as my understanding goes, is that they used to be, or maybe currently still are, very time limited, three months uh, in duration, and that one of the major changes that Trump administration is trying to implement is to make them 
last for a year, and then you can renew them. Right. So, yes, under the rules that were previously existing, these plans could last no more than three months. The administration has now changed to a rule where they can last up to a year, but they can be renewed essentially indefinitely beyond that. So there's, in my view, under the rules the administration has put forward, the moniker short-term limited duration is just sort of a misnomer. They're just insurance products that aren't subject to the other ACA regulations. So one other health policy issue that I'm seeing in some of the races in the political discussion to some degree is this idea of Medicare for all, especially Mm -hmm. uh, coming from Senator Bernie Sanders of Mm -hmm. Vermont. Mm -hmm. What is Medicare for all? Do you think that's really a salient election issue at this time? So... Medicare for all often is taken to refer to two different things. The term, I think, has originally been used to refer to proposals like that, the one that was put forward by Senator Sanders, which would replace our sort of current patchwork of private insurance and public insurance programs with a single public program that would provide health insurance to everyone. That's, in essence, you know, how Medicare functions today for people over 65 and for people with disabilities, which is where the name comes from. In fact, Senator Sanders' proposal will differ in various ways from the way Medicare operates today. His proposal would actually involve less cost-sharing than Medicare has today. On the other hand, Medicare, as it exists today, does have some role for private insurers. So it's a sort of the name it goes under, but not necessarily quite as simple as just taking the existing Medicare program and applying it to everyone. Medicare for All has also, in some cases, been used to refer to a different type of proposal rather than this sort of single-payer type proposal, a proposal that would offer everyone the option to buy into a Medicare or Medicare-like plan but preserve existing public and private health insurance options. So those sort of two types of proposals have both been traveling under that name. In terms of whether these types of proposals clearly have played some role in the political debate so far this year. You know, in terms of this election, there's no chance that any version of Medicare for All will become law in the next two years. I think the country's path on this question is more a question that will be litigated in the presidential election headed into 2020. And so I think that's where this will be really be an issue. So we've only got a few more weeks left until the 2018 midterms. Yep. What other health policy issues do you think are out there that aren't getting attention but that are important? And what are some that you think we're going to hear more about after the election when the proverbial dust settles? For the most part, I actually think our healthcare debate is going to remain a little bit stuck. I think we're still going to be dominated by discussion of the ACA for the most part. The one issue that I think is starting to get more attention under a few different guises is how to reduce the prices we pay for healthcare services in the United States, I think particularly in private insurance. So we know that private insurance plans in the U.S. pay much more for services than Medicare or Medicaid do. We know that prices of healthcare services, so this is right, the price of an office visit, the price of a hospital stay are much higher in the United States than they are in other countries. And so I think there are sort of two big questions that both the research community and I think policymakers are trying to grapple with is, one, are we getting anything in exchange for those higher prices? Is it worth it? And two, if we concluded we weren't getting anything in exchange for those prices, how would we think about trying to reduce them? Well, Matt, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today to talk about healthcare in the 2018 midterm elections. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. To get more analysis from Brookings experts on the upcoming elections, go to brookings.edu slash 2018 midterms. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo with assistance from Mark Holster. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. 
Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Our interns this semester are Sharon Bernier and Tim Madden. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.